Hi everyone, it's your host, Mary Morton, and tonight we're going to pull up a chair by the fireplace or wherever you can get comfy and take a look back at some of the best moments that made 2023 such a great year on Gathering Ground. It feels like just yesterday that we were taking a deep dive with Angelique Power and Tracy Hall talking about young changemakers fighting the good fight against censorship. Time flies, doesn't it? And in this week's episode, we will revisit moments that made us cheer, like Gina Yashere's hilarious journey to Bob Hart's Abishola, and moments that made us think, like our dive into self-care as self-preservation with Jacqueline Boyd from The Care Plan and Jacqueline Hamilton from Chicago Freedom School. But here's the thing, we're not just looking back, we're also peeking ahead because 2024 is shaping up to be an incredible year. We will welcome Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton, who will join us to talk about paving the path for progress. And we'll also hear from Montana State Legislator Zoe Zephyr. We'll have the latest Race to Lead survey results, and we'll hear from the very talented and brilliant Gina Torres. I am so excited for this episode of Gathering Ground because today, for the first time ever, I am being joined by a Gathering Ground co-host. She is none other than Monique Jones. Monique is a nonprofit leader with over 20 years of experience in the social impact sector and is currently the president and CEO of Forefront, an Illinois state association whose mission is to build a vibrant social impact sector for all the people of Illinois. I want to welcome our guest. Um, First of all, this is someone who's been on the podcast three times. Did you realize that three times, Boo? Um, Boole, the founder and publisher of Nonprofit AF, and Julie Buck, the president and CEO of the Community Foundation of Grundy County in Illinois. Something you mentioned earlier, Julie, was about um, burnout. Uh, right. That That's a real thing. We've experienced the great resignation. We've experienced, um, as a matter of fact, my team at Forefront, the majority of us are under two years tenured. Um, and I appreciate the fact that people can go and find the jobs that fit their lifestyle. But in a space when we are now dealing with more trauma, um, more insults on our civil and human rights, it is infuriating that it takes so much to retain employees and give them the things they need to lead their lives. What are some promising practices that we can ensure our employees in the nonprofit sector can work with us and and be rewarded for their work and not feel like every day that they go home, it's just traumatic and beat down. I think that's a really good point because the reality is we spend most of our time at work. We do. And uh, so we, so th- we have, we should be happy, right? We should be happy where we're going to spend hours upon hours, days upon days and have two days off. I don't understand uh, that, that, that formula. Um, <laughs> And so, and certainly we've seen at Morton Group, to your point, the great resignation is that there are lots of opportunities out there Mm -hmm. and folks are much more in tune because they've had some time to think about it, um, in some cases because of of COVID, right? What really is going to make them happy? Um, Yeah, how do we make organizations attractive, Mm -hmm. right? And keep people engaged and and supported um, because that, 
that is what it comes down to. I mean, people, and, and also people really do want to know, and certainly folks who are under the age of 40 want to know that you are doing something with regard to equity in your organization. It could be DEI, it could be racial equity, but what we're seeing and what the data suggests is that that in some cases matters more than money. If people do not think that they're going to come into an organization, particularly if they're underrepresented, sure. come into an organization and feel included and and, and if, as if they belong, um, they're not going to stay. So how does that look from your vantage point, Boo? I agree. I think that for some people, those things are absolutely critical. I mean, I would, I think for me, it's really vital to go into an organization. Like, are you focused on equity? Are you living your values? Are you just putting them on a, on a website, right? And at the same time, we do have to acknowledge that, like, we suck at paying people in this sector. And we suck at compensating them with, like, family, pay family leave and retirement. Like, many people have no idea what they're going to do for retirement. We're just going to work till we die, apparently, is, is a lot of the plans for a lot of folks here. Um, and yeah, like shitty pay is going to affect whether people will stay at your organization or not. That's like the basic essential, right? Because if that's not going to be there, it doesn't matter how amazing your organization is with everything else. Like people need money to live. And again, like this goes to the funders out there who are just like, who don't really understand this. And I think specifically progressive leaning funders, because this is not the case with conservative funders who tend to treat their folks as like you know their flag bearers are as essential to their movement i was talking to angie kim of um center for cultural innovation and she she was talking about how you know, like for conservatives like if you are if you're a conservative pundit or a leader and you are disgraced for somehow you got fired for embezzlement or whatever you know the conservative movement will rally around you conservative funders and movement will rally around you you will get a book deal, a spot on Dancing with the Star. You will get, you know, a, a spot on Fox News or whatever, you know, like, and that's not the case for progressive leaders. It's like if we somehow said something extremely progressive and challenging and start getting death threats from people, I actually have seen this happen to an organization who said something that challenged one of the political, like conservative right-wing pundits. And then he mobilized people to attack them and they started getting death threats. And, and when they reach out to their funders and be like, hey, can you support us with maybe some legal defense funds or whatever? The funders like, oh, no, sorry. That's no, no, that's that's outside of our scope. You're on your own. Like, this is how we treat. And then we wonder why people are burning out. You know, like we have to start protecting our progressive leaders by paying them well, ensuring that they actually have a future to work for and ensuring that they're protected when they go out and start pushing for systems change. For this episode of Gathering Ground, I was excited to sit down with two people who, in spite of the pandemic, continue to make sure that the arts and activism can thrive together through their work and advocacy efforts. Our first guest, Carla Estella Rivera, is a storyteller, writer, theater practitioner, change maker, and the executive director of Arts Administrators of Color Network, a national nonprofit advocating for people of color as artists and arts administrators through collaboration and community building, and the creation of opportunities for better representation in the arts community. Carla is a company member of Second Story Chicago, and her past roles include Executive Director of Free Street Theater, Director of Public Affairs at Ingenuity, and Director of Communications at Aspira of Illinois. You know, as we um, get ready to wrap up in, in a little bit, I'd love for you to give any advice that you would have to listeners who 
are dedicated right to their arts and really want to do this kind of work yet are discouraged um yet feel that they can't make ends meet at least right not right now what would you say to them uh because that's a that's a rough spot to be in what what kinds of things and what kinds of strategies um, did you employ to give you hope and, and to keep you going? And I'm, I'm going to start with you, Shannon. Who, um, you know, I think like for me, whenever I fall out of uh, love for <laughs> what I'm doing or or like lose creativity or, you know, these things happen. Um, and in particular, when we associate or um, link sort of our, our need to pay bills and, and capitalism comes into play um, and all of these, these layers sort of can infect the work, right? Um, I, for me, it's sort of like getting back with people um, and, and making in community. Um, and having these conversations in community. And so like other people spark my creativity, other people lift me up. And, you know, when you're in space together making, um, you, you can't lose hope, right? Like it is a space that just hope and creativity bloom and, and get conjured in these spaces. So anytime I'm down or running low or can't pay a bill. I'm like, I need to get people together right now. Like we must be in space making. Um, and, and I always leave with a better attitude and like more ideas and more connection. So I think if you're down, this is your moment to get people together and everybody gets lifted up. Wonderful. What would you say, Carla? I love that. <laughs> having your people, your community mm -hmm. is so, so important. Um, for me, I would say there are absolutely things in the world that we need to do right now because those things cannot wait. And so if, if that's economic, um, you know, and, and, and really actually chiefly, I, I'm thinking about the economics of, of, of being an artist. Um, if you've got to take that job in order to put food on your table until you're able, you know, one, don't ever stop making, don't ever stop believing that you've ceased to be an art. You know, don't believe that you've ceased to be an artist, I should say. Um, you know, um, I would say to Shannon's point, surround yourself with community who are in the same world um, so that you can lean on each other, uh, find your groups, find your advocacy groups, find, um, your, your artist groups. They are everywhere. We are abundant. And, um, and, and there is a role for everybody. Um, and I know for me, I had to, pause. Like my journey as an artist is certainly not a linear one. And so I had to pause being a writer for a long time until I found the little ways that I could inject my art into my life um, and into and, and, and bring a bring a practice back in. Um, and so don't lose hope. Um, 
bring in your community, always say what you are and who you are, because if you hide those things, then also people around you don't know how to show up for you. So if you hide those things about yourself, um, and then an opportunity comes and it goes somewhere else or to someone else, and you really wish that was your opportunity to take, and you had, hadn't said anything, then, you know, that's an additional barrier. Don't ever be an, uh, a barrier to yourself. And also, nobody, there's, there's no one person or no one group that knows it all. And I think I spent a lot of time in my life trying to be the expert, and there's really no one solitary expert or authority. Um, walk in and be yourself. Walk in and be unapologetic about who you are. Um, because that also allows other people to disarm themselves and be who they are. Um, and, and there's a lot of beauty there. Just really beautiful what you both have said. Um, I just want to just kind of summarize it a little bit. Um, this idea around hope, really important. And, and hope is a discipline, right? It's a practice as well. We have to, we have to hold on to hope. This is just not another episode. This is a very special episode because we are all reunited again here in beautiful, lovely Detroit, Michigan. And I have an opportunity to talk with Angelique and Tracy, Angelique Power and Tracy Hall, to many of you. Want to just focus a little bit on where all of us spend most of our time, which is at work, uh, which is, you know, what's wrong with that paradigm? <laughs> right. What, you know, um, yet, I uh, want to just hear, what are you proud of? What, what are the things that have happened in the last two years that you're proud of with regard to the place where you spend most of your time? Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot. Um, you know, the, we did a year-long listening tour with the full staff that went from listening to this community-rooted strategic planning process. And that has translated into a new strategy for Skillman. And the long and short of it is the inside-outside game. It's really about how does change happen. It happens through um, those that are closest to the work, and we call them the ground builders. So those are young people. Those are educators. Those are residents. And so how do we create equitable education systems? We have the ground builders who know the most lead systems change. So the inside game is the ground builders are the designers, and the outside game is policymakers. And mm. so um, policy is actually where a lot of the systems are designed. and. Although you have wonderful warriors that are policymakers, they are not the right people to design those policies. You actually need the ground builders to do it. Mm -hmm. And so Skillman has this unique position where we can be invited to tables with the policymakers, and we actually have earned our keep with the ground builders too. And so we can reset tables. Um, we can bring together, because often the ground builders, because they aren't part of creating good policy, then their position is to react to bad policy and reject it. And so um, we waste so much time instead of actually like 
co-creating something and together. having them in the room at the very beginning. Yes. And isn't this, this is what I found for young people, this is the only group of folks that the majority of the population feels completely fine making policies for, on behalf of, and never including them in never the conversation. Never including them. Thank you for saying that, Mary. So um, most proud of the inside-outside game strategy that was co-built. Second thing is that I get to work with young people all the time. And I also get to recast our understanding of young people right now. Um, there is this sort of benevolent uh, behavior, which is like, we will help the young people and it's like, oh honey, <laughs> mm -hmm. we need their help. Mm -hmm. We need them mm -hmm. to actually guide mm -hmm. us. So Detroit is a young city. 43% of people in Detroit are under 30. That's what the latest census has told us. And so we talk a lot about Gen Z. I think I was talking about them last time. Yeah, yes. You were. Um, getting to this understanding of how they're, you know, 48% folks of color, one in um, five are LGBTQIA+, one in three knows someone who's gender non-binary, intersectional in their identities and in their analysis of issues and their proposal of solutions. They're just, they see this vision that is not incrementalism. It's like wholesale change. And so we have added uh, the youngest board member in our history, 22-year-old uh, Jeremiah Steen, he's fantastic. We bring young people where we go when we go to policy conferences. Uh, we don't show up alone. We are actually known for like traveling with our young folks. We've been to Wyoming last year. We spent a week with um, Che with Rhymefest. He was there curating a week wow. for us with indigenous youth and um, they weigh in on our strategy. And so we're actually in this space right now, not just of co-creating with um, you know, the usual suspects, but actually letting young people guide us. And I'm really excited Inviting about that. Inviting them to yeah. guide you, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, we, I, I've been really trying to be more cognizant of the language I use, and we often talk about how we're gonna allow people in, and what we're trying to do is start using the language of encouraging and inviting folks mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. to share the space um, because they have as much onus, if not more, frankly, yeah. when you, you know, to what you were saying in terms of thinking about things that we're doing now may not have the impact. We may not see the impact right. of them right now, but people, you know, coming after us will, uh, yeah. such as the example of Toni Morrison. Yeah, no, I was... Um First of all, I just want to acknowledge uh, the work that mm -hmm. uh, the Skillman Foundation has been doing um, before and since your uh, arrival. But I think that recognition of um, nothing for us without us That's right. also extends to young people. Because Absolutely. Sometimes we forget, mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. um, is, is really important. And when I think about the kinds of things that I myself recognize as not being tenable. Um, you know, how we, the cognitive dissonance, right? Mm. That's happening when we think about climate and not being able to connect it um, to the phenomena we were seeing around not just weather, but, you know, biohazards and that we normalize it, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think about the very foundations uh, of of society today are not going to be um, something that we can survive 
even two more generations unless we address it. That's Housing, right. you know, being from L.A. It's hard, hard. Living in Chicago, even, it's really hard to see people disconnect um, the rise in uh, the cost of housing and, and, and that people don't connect that to the growing number of people who are unhoused and look for ways to sort of make that the fault of people who are unhoused, moving too quickly to uh, reducing it to um, drug use mm -hmm. or to, you know, other kinds of things. Laziness, that, any lazy, number of things. Any of those things, mm -hmm. right? right? And not, you know, connecting the fact that it, you might have been able to afford an apartment in Denver um, even three, four years ago for $750. And today that same apartment, same location is $1,800. Right. Because the first thing I do in, in my travels, especially because I take, you know, a lot of, you know, Lyft and Uber, is I talk to people who are driving mm -hmm. about, you know, rent and so things I. like that, home ownership. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, this, this year for, at the American Library Association, I think this year in our sort of trajectory as a nation has found us having to wrangle with foundational questions about what democracy means. Mm -hmm. And it's not a surprise to me that libraries and schools are on the front line because the notion of public, right, the notion of the public and, and our ability to move together and value each other, you know, is something that is um, being contested now. So, so I think the, this, this idea about whether or not the right to read, mm. um, the right to access information is at the foundation of a democracy. I mean, actually information withdrawal is the prelude to fascism, yes, right? Yes. So when you remove it, that's what censorship is. Mm -hmm. You know, censorship is, you know, there's like this whole value chain that goes from misinformation, which is just wrong information, to disinformation, which is willfully wrong information, to information disparity, right? Uh, the information that you and I have, the quality of it, the volume of it is not the same. Information segregation, right? I have information, but you are not going to have it. Or I have uh, fiber optic, uh, uh, fiber uh, broadband, and you have, you know, old stuff. You're buffering, you know, you're just like moving in like slow motion and like a flip book, right, on the Internet every time you get on it. To then, you know, uh, one of the, you know, main extremes is information withdrawal. When you take information, remove information, like that we should be at a point in our democracy where disinformation is like a norm or a standard and then censorship is also something that, you know, you're seeing more and more uh, people being radicalized into, you mm -hmm. know, whether it is extremist groups who are not reading the materials and then still calling for bans or censorships. Mm -hmm. So I think I think for, you know, for us the mission of the American Library Association, you know, which was founded in 1876, you know, the mission basically is um, uh, with, um, you know, making sure that we are increasing uh, learning and uh, access to information for all. That's like our baseline uh, mission. And we find ourselves now having to fight for the basics. So since the last time, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I've seen you, 
we have seen a state vote to defund public libraries rather than allow uh, certain types of books to be on the shelves. And what are those books, right? Mostly those books are books that talk about civil rights, um, that talk about uh, um, the lived histories of uh, people who are BIPOC or LGBTQIA, so people of color or people who are queer. Uh, increasingly, also, um, books that really speak to women's rights. Um, and so, you know, again, it's almost like moving backwards um, in time. And, uh, and I feel like in some ways it has pushed those of us who work in libraries, certainly at the ALA, to, to a point where we cannot equivocate. Um, about intellectual freedom. We cannot equivocate about the right to read. And um, one of our uh, spaces, which is the Freedom to Read Foundation, which the American Library Association uh, founded in order to really just fight for the right to read, um, our slogan there, our mantra, if you will, is free people read freely. Yes. Very simple, right? Because sometimes if you talk about censorship, the words don't connect, right? Uh, but Everyone believes. That's our First Amendment, right? First Amendment, right? Freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, right? Freedom of the press. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are being contested now. So we, you know, we've, we've, we found, I think, our moment. Uh, and, and we understand also, too, that this battle is also a battle for the existence and the preservation of libraries, which are the repository of free and open information. So um, this past year uh, for us has, has been a year of reckoning and a year of intentionality and a year, you know, to Angelique's point of listening and acting, you know. Listening and acting. Yeah. Listening and acting. I mean, I'm just blown away right now. I know blown away. I know. Today, I am so excited to bring you an incredible conversation with stand-up comedian, writer, and all-around powerhouse, Gina Yashere. So I was starting to think, I need to look outside of this industry in case this isn't working out. Right. So I was thinking maybe I'll go into public speaking, motivational. That's what I was starting to look at because I was like, I don't know if this comedy thing is going to, I've been in it for 30, nearly 30 years, where well, it was like 25 at this point. And I was like, and I don't see the progression that I would have hoped for. Mm -hmm. um, so that was in 2017. I started to in that way. I, I, start, I was just still selling my specials and that was giving me an income of sorts. Um, then I get a call at the blue. So I just came back from Montreal, Canada, doing the Just for Last Festival. I get a call out of the blue. My agent calls me and says, hey, I just had a call from um, Chuck Laurie Productions, Warner Brothers in Burbank, and they want to meet you on Monday morning. Now I'd just come back from months of touring. I was exhausted. And I'd said to Nina, I'm not going, I said to my agent before I left, when I come back from this tour, I want three weeks to four weeks off, no traveling. I don't want to go anywhere. So don't put anything in my calendar where I have to get on a plane. So I come back on the Thursday night and he calls me Friday morning to say, they want to meet you on Monday. And I'm like, I'm not getting, I'm tired. Didn't I tell you? And I've had so many meetings where I've gone in and they've blown smoke up up my ass and nothing happened. So I was like, nah, I'm not interested in this meeting. It's just going to be another bullshit meeting. And I really, I'm just tired. I don't want it. 
And he was like, this is Chuck Lorre. And I didn't know he was. He was like, put the phone down. Google Chuck Lorre, call me back. Then yeah. obviously I Google Chuck Lorre and I go, oh, it's the man behind the Big Bang Theory, Two and a Half Men, Mike and Molly. So I'm thinking, oh, it's a sitcom guy. And my dream has always been to be the best friend in a sitcom, which would help me sell out theatre. So I was like, oh, maybe they saw me somewhere and uh, want to put me in a sitcom. Okay, fine, I will go. But they have to fly me first class. I'm not going economy. I need first class ticket and a five-star hotel. And after much wrangling back and forth between my agent and them, they finally went, all right, we'll fly you first class. So they flew me out. I go to this meeting. I walk into a room with Chuck Lorre and Al Higgins and Eddie Gordetsky, who are two of the exec producers who's, who have worked with them on a lot of shows. And I walk into the meeting and basically Chuck tells me, um, I love Billy Gardell, who I made Mike and Molly with. Uh, I want to make another show. Uh, with Billy Gardell, but this time, you know, this was in the middle of all the Trump craziness. He's like, this time I want the female um, protagonist to be a Nigerian woman. I want her to be African. I want her to be an African immigrant uh, because I want to counteract all the, this Trump nonsense that's going on. And I just came back from a vacation in Africa and I love the people. And I was like, oh, Africa, where exactly? But okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a continent, but whatever. Okay, you came back from Africa, good for you. And um, so, I, so I'm like, so, and I'm thinking, you want me to be this Nigerian woman? Because I'm there, obviously I'm not Hollywood standards for the love interest in any show. Uh, so I was confused. I was like, do you want me to be? And he was like, not necessarily. And I was like, well, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> and he goes, what we want is, you know, we're three white guys. We, we can't do this. We need, you know, you to consult on this project, let's say. You, you'll be a consultant helping to make sure that this African family is authentic. Right. So I'm thinking to myself, mm. consultant? Mm -hmm. What would be an African Oh, this sounds bullshit. This just sounds like nonsense. I'm not, I'm not interested in this. But obviously, I didn't say that in the room. I just pretended to be interested. So I was like, okay, yeah. uh, a consultant. Okay. And uh, how did you find me? And I'm thinking they're going to go, oh, we, we've seen your Netflix specials. We've seen you on The Daily Show. We've nope. seen The Night Show. We've seen nope. all your work. We've followed you. They went, oh, we typed Nigerian female comic into Google. And... Uh, and you were the best one that came up. And so at is this that point, just wild? That's that's a wild story. Wow. And, and so at this point in my head, I'm fucking I'm furious. I'm absolutely furious. I'm like, you know, this is the epitome of white privilege in Hollywood that you can fly me first class all the way from New York to Los Angeles, put me up in a five-star hotel on a random whim and Google search. Because because you can. That's so I'm right. furious at this point. Anyway, so, but I don't tell them that. I, I play very calm in the meeting. I go, very interesting, okay. Um, thanks for having me uh, in for this meeting. Uh, we'll talk soon. And I left the meeting and I called my agent and I was like, absolutely not. I have no interest in this project. It sounds exploitative. I've had my ideas ripped off in the past where I've gone into meetings and spilled my soul out. And then they've said, oh, no, nah, this is not for us. And then three years later, I see my exact ideas being implemented with somebody else. So I was like, I've had my ideas stolen before. This consultant thing sounds like nonsense. It just sounds like they want to exploit my brain, steal my ideas, steal my culture. And then I'll be cut, you know, cast aside mm -hmm. and, and I'm in a worse position than I was. But, right. and, you know, so I was like, no, tell them thank you. But no, thank you. And my agent was like, oh, my God. Um, 
I'll give you a day or two to think about it. And I was like, no, I had the meeting. I would like you to book, get them to book my flight back. So this uh, this was on Monday. I had the meeting. I was like, I'd like to, I'll stay in LA for another day and just hang out and see my friends because I used mm-hmm. to live here. And then I'd like to fly home on Wednesday, please. Thank you. Luckily, I told my brother, my younger brother, who's the wisest in my family, and my best friend, Lila, that I was going for this meeting. So they obviously called me to see how it went. And I told them I was going to turn it down. And both my brother and my best friend screamed at me uh, in unison down the phone saying, this is an opportunity. Are you an idiot? Like you've been complaining about the lack of representation of our people on TV and the lack of accurate authentic portrayals of us Mm -hmm. and here's an opportunity for you to console on the show and make this happen and you're turning it down because of your pride or your ego you're an idiot and my brother went into a but and my brother has anecdotes to back up everything he was he told me a bunch of anecdotes about hollywood shows where actors have turned it down then another actor has come in and 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 it's blown up and he had all the and i was like yeah but they don't want me on the show i'm just a consultant and he was like it doesn't matter just be in the room. That's Dick. right. That's be right. And I think that's room. an important story, right? Important lesson. Yeah. To get in the room first. Yeah. yeah. Right? So I always turned down being mm-hmm. in the room. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I was like, okay, maybe you're right. So I called my agent back and I was like, have you turned down <laughs> that gig? And he was like, hell no. I was waiting to, to till you were on a plane back to New York before I made that call. So I said, tell him I'll come in for another meeting. And we'll go from there. So I went back in for another meeting, got in the room with them. And once I got in the room with Chuck, I was like, okay, this guy's no nonsense. He he doesn't bullshit. He's very honest in his opinions. And and I think maybe I might be able to trust this guy. And I was like, I'm in the room. I might as well. And, I, and the juices started flowing. So I started telling them about my life. And at one point I was like, in my head, I was like, Gina, you're giving away the show that you pitched a year ago. Yeah. You wanted Mm-hmm. And you're going to plunder the show that you pitch and give it to them and risk them stealing it. And I was like, well, I pitched the show. Nobody wanted it. Here's a chance for me to get uh, some iteration of it made with right. this dude. Right. So I'm going to go all in. This is my last hurrah. I'm going to throw everything in. And if it doesn't work out, then I will figure out a way to leave this industry and go and do something else. Um, so this I didn't is, realize that you were thinking that as yeah. you you considered this opportunity, you were that close to saying, "I'm done with it." Yeah, I was. Yeah. I was still doing my stand up, and I was right. I was going to spend the next couple of years doing as much stand up as I could, saving my money. Yep. And then I was gonna, and I was looking for an out to okay. something else to do because I was like, I'm coming up to fifty years old. I can't mm-hmm. do this that mm-hmm. much longer. If the industry is going to keep banging doors in my face, and I'm never going to make it then why am I banging my head against this brick wall? Let me do something else. Okay. So, yeah, so once I got in the room, I started giving them ideas for characters and and, and basically plundering my own personal story for this show. And I, I helped them come up with the names of the characters. I helped them come up with the storyline. You know, if you, Abishola's story is basically based on my mother's story. Mm-hmm. My mom and dad met in England they had us all. My the England, in England, it was super racist at the time. They couldn't get jobs in their professions. My dad had a PhD. He was a qualified lawyer. My dad was a, uh, my mum was a a school teacher and a prince school principal, and they couldn't get jobs in those areas in England. 
And so my dad was like, well, let's go back to Nigeria and take the children. Let's go. And my mom was like, no, my kids are British. I want them to have the opportunities that being British entails. I'm staying. And my dad basically got on a plane and went back to Nigeria and never came back. So my mother was left in England raising us by herself. So if you've watched the show, Bob Hart's Abishola, that is Abishola's story. So basically, I plundered my life story and the show that I'd been pitching in 2017 and fed it into this show and and gave them everything. And you then also, you became a character on the show because that wasn't, the beginning let's talk that a little bit about the that plan, yeah. so so after i spent basically uh it turned from another meeting to i stayed in los angeles for another nearly three weeks writing this pilot with them i stayed in the room i just kept coming back there they were like chuck was like let's write this thing and i was like all right I let's write it. this thing let's get it done so let's i made three pairs of underwear last two and a half weeks <laughs> washing them in the hotel sink every night because i get up in the morning I put my freshly washed dry underwear on after I showered and then I'd drive to Warner Brothers and we'd be in the room all day and we knocked out this pilot. So after two days of working with them, Chuck, you know, got his representative to call my agent and go, forget this consultant thing. We cannot do this thing without Gina. So we're going to make her a co-creator of the show, which she has never done with anybody before. Made me a co-creator, made me a producer on the show. So now I'm like, oh, now I own a piece of this show. So if this show gets made, this is That's amazing. Right. And I was right. like, well, I'm writing the show. I'm writing this pilot. And my dream has always been to be the best friend in a sitcom. So I uh, I start thinking, how am I going to get in this show? I don't want to be Abishola. I don't want to be the love interest. I don't want to be the main person. I just want to be the funny friend because mm-hmm. that is what I'm made to do. And so I just started pitching in the room. You know what? Abishola needs a best friend. Don't you think she needs a best friend? <laughs> and so I created this best friend character. And at the time, she wasn't one of the series regulars. She was only going to be a guest star. So she didn't even have a name. She was just called Woman on the Bus. On the whiteboard, she was just Woman on the Bus. <laughs> but I knew that that was the role that I was creating for myself. They didn't know that, but I knew it. Right. And so we wrote this pilot. After three weeks or two and a half weeks, we had this beautifully crafted pilot. And uh, Chuck was like, well, I've sent it into CBS. And I think they, they like it. They're interested in it. And if they are interested in this show, you know, if you want to be on the show, if you want to play Abishola, you know, you're going to have to audition. And I turned to Chuck and I was like, I don't want the role of Abishola. And they all looked at me like, what? And I, was, I just pointed to the whiteboard. Mm-hmm. And I was like, woman on the bus. Mm-hmm. I want woman on the bus. And Chuck looked at me and went, you're very fucking smart. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to speak with Tanika Johnson. Tanika has turned her own experiences of growing up in Chicago into art. And it's art that is changing our city for the better. Her projects serve as a platform to challenge stereotypes and foster understanding to illuminate the systemic issues of the past and work towards bridging current divides. You know, when I talk about Folded Map, um, you know, I give the excerpts of the Map Twins interviews because these are people who did not know each other prior to meeting each other through the project. Um, They live in racially and economically different neighborhoods and um, because it's Chicago have been programmed to believe stereotypes about each other. And so one of the... (laughs) 
most hilarious things that, you know, I tend to show the more positive snippets of the MAP twins, meaning because each of the each of their interviews I included in an hour long kind of montage of all of them meeting. And so some of the MAP twins became closer than others. Um, all of them keep in touch. But what was really interesting is the body language. And that's why I knew the project had to be more than just photography, because I had conducted my first Map Twin interview and I was just doing audio. And because it seemed like, okay, I'm just asking everybody these same five questions separately and together. Like, this shouldn't be weird. But when they got in front of each other and met each other for the first time and and answering questions like, what is missing in your neighborhood? What what do you want in your neighborhood? How much did your house cost? How How much do you pay for rent? It was so interesting to see how you could tell people's varying comfort levels answering that question in front of someone who they knew was going to have a completely different answer. And that's when I knew, oh, this has to be video because half of what was interesting was not just what they were saying, but, but how they looked at each other when they were hearing it, how uncomfortable some people might have been. Um, one example that I that I often use when I'm presenting about folding map um, are the map twins Bridget and Carmen. Uh, Bridget is um, a white woman who lived in Rogers Park, and she was telling how much her budget was for looking for her house, and she said she she wanted something under four hundred thousand. And her map twin, black woman named Carmen, who's literally living. In the house her parents bought, the the two flat that her parents bought in the 70s, <laughs> she visibly, like, opened her eyes and was, and was shocked. Like, like <laughs> and it's, you wouldn't have caught that if it was just audio. But when I show that clip, everyone laughs. And then everyone also sees Bridget feel uncomfortable and try to kind of like comfort Carmen, like, oh yeah, I guess that is a lot of money, but I mean, is it is it a lot? It's only a lot compared to, so it just showed how the depth and history and uncomfortability of just answering a simple question, like how much your house costs, um, put the responsibility and the heaviness of, of segregation and racism onto actual residents. And quite frankly, even though I, I I did this project focusing on race, some stuff I just feel like um, it's not the responsibility of certain individuals. Like you should not feel, you shouldn't have to feel weird or bad because you can have a budget for a house that technically is kind of normal, like two hundred to four hundred thousand. That's 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 just what it is. Right. That's but because it's Chicago, Bridget, the white woman, felt felt bad because someone she just met 
who she really liked um, thought that that was like outrageous. And then for Carmen to feel like what? Like it just showed how how all of this makes normal conversation so awkward, so uncomfortable, and how it's really hard for residents to just navigate a typical adult conversation like that without the history of racism and segregation showing up. And for me, it showed up in their reaction because they felt awkward and you shouldn't feel awkward. That's a very normal conversation everyone should be able to have. But because of racism and segregation, it's not. That's right. That's right. Access to opportunities um, really prevent people in some cases from talking about money because we're socialized that way, right? We're not supposed to talk about money, sex, or politics. Exactly. Is we have to talk particularly about money mm-hmm. because if we don't, that one percent will continue to control all of it. We have to we have to start those conversations when when children are young. I remember a friend of mine uh, who was white saying that she grew up with her father showing her, you know, at least once a week, uh, stocks, the stocks in the, in the paper and how they had changed. Well, that wasn't an experience that I had. Uh, and, um, those weren't conversations that were going on in my household. Right. Um, that was not so, my business growing up. Mind your business. <laughs> that's right. Grown people's business. <laughs> Which is probably why I look going back to the NBA. That's probably why I wanted the NBA. Like I want to understand money beyond bank account. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Exactly right. Right. And so um, I think we have to normalize all those conversations. They're all related mm-hmm. and it's really important to normalize them. And I think it probably was surprising maybe for Carmen to see that Bridget felt uncomfortable talking about money as well, because there's an assumption too, if you are doing well and, and to your point, that is not an exorbitant amount of money for a house, certainly not in Chicago yet. What I know, because I'm a fundraiser as well, is that people who have money, and I mean people who have a ton of money, are fairly uncomfortable about it as well. And I think people are often surprised by that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because again, it's how we think about money. You know, money, you know, that um, biblical uh, quote is being the root of all evil. No, it's what we do with the money that gives it value, not money in and of itself. Exactly. Our topic this week was radical self-care. What is it? Why is this framing important? And what can we do to practice it as often as possible? And so our guest today, I'm really excited uh, to welcome Jacqueline Boyd, the founder, owner of The Care Plan. And I want to also welcome, and we have two Jacquelines for the first time. That's it, never happened. I just want to say, we're making history here again. Uh, Jacqueline Hamilton. Uh, Jacqueline is the healing justice practitioner based in Chicago and is currently the Director of Wellness, Culture, and Action at Chicago Freedom School. Let's turn to Jacqueline Boyd. I actually really want us to not just think about self-care from a place of piecemealing it, right? What most people do or what's allowed for most people or as an afterthought. I want us to get expansive about what brings us comfort and joy and pleasure and creativity. And the piece that worked for me around this, and I'm, I'm not perfect, I'm not practicing wellness every single day in the way I'd love to, but it is a process. But I think for me, the, the mental framing that I realized in COVID 
was that my ancestors did not go through what they went through for me to be miserable or tired or fatigued or just working to work. I am of the first generations of Black and queer folks that has the opportunity to live well. It is my duty to do so. And so that really helped me really thinking about the lineage that I come from, even in just recent history. It sort of gave me a mandate to say, you have to, and you should. And that's a way of honoring yourself and lifting up the next generations to come. You know, some folks might think that self-care is um, selfish and that really it's not about, you know, yourself. It's not about, you know, each of us. It is about um, really taking care of yourself. And I'm wondering what what you would tell someone uh, who really feels like I, I, I can't, I can't I can't make the time to do that. I don't, I don't even know how I can make the time. That's what I'm, I'm, you know, you talk about scheduling things and I think that's a really great idea and I do that for myself. However, I certainly have run into folks who feel they just don't have a moment. They don't have a moment, whether they're a caregiver, right? And caregivers, I'm so happy that there's been so much more focus on caregivers uh, in the last several years, particularly around, you know, COVID. Um, however, because of how many folks, and I'm going to say most folks who are identified as, you know, women have been socialized around giving care, right? You are supposed to be the person who makes sacrifices if, if necessary. You're the person, you know, who may be the head of the household. Um, how do we get to those people and say, it's okay for you to take care of yourself? Because often I will say to someone I, when I'm doing executive coaching, if you're not taking care of yourself, you certainly can't take care of your staff. And everything, as you know, will come to, you know, the folks in the leadership team or the executive director or the, you know, the CEO of the company. It all it all rises, as it turns out. And so um, there are many things, for instance, I'll just use my uh, Morton Group as an example where, you know, something may be revealed about a staff person and they'll say, well, did you know that? And I'm like, yeah, I, I knew that already because I get lots of information that I have to hold right? That I'm not going to share with other people. It's not appropriate to do so. Um, and sometimes I think we don't realize how much we are holding. And then you have an example, I think that might happen. Maybe you all have experienced this where you get, you get to go on vacation and then you get sick, you know, and you get sick because you've stopped, right? You Your body has finally just slowed down and then everything catches up with you. And so I, I think, again, this idea, of, particularly for women, it's difficult uh, in terms of asserting yourself, at least that's what I found in terms of saying, I want to do nothing today. I am going to take the day and do nothing. I'm going to watch TV and stretch out on the couch and that's okay. How do we move people from the extreme of, I, I can't do this. It's not appropriate. I have too many things to do. I have too many things to, to take care of, you know, with my aunt or my mother or my father or whomever, or, I've got to go home and babysit for my, you know, young brother. Whatever the case may be, I don't have that kind of time. What are the what are the, some of the strategies or examples in some cases I would say that we can use and employ to get people to understand that it's important that you take this time and it's not about being selfish, it's about to your point, Jackie, self-preservation and that taking care of yourself is the right thing to do at the end of the day. Um Jacqueline Hamilton, what do you think about that? 
No, I think um, there is power in noticing. Just mm. like having mm-hmm. some time to notice, right? You just mentioned holding a lot. Oftentimes we don't even know how much we're holding because we're so in, caught up in the going of it all that you don't notice, oh, you you have 20 things on your to-do list this day, right? Um, it's a lot. So just being able to like take some time and notice, I think also what's been helpful for me is really uh, taking some time to figure out what's the difference between an emergency, something mm-hmm. that is urgent, and something that is important. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes we are in a space of like everything is an emergency when right. it, it's that's not what what is happening. This might be really important or it might be urgent, but this is an emergency. But I am matching it with uh, with the energy of an emergency, which is drawing out all of my. Um, all of my own energy as well. So I think just having some, taking a few minutes and just noticing, I've literally written down all of the things and thought, oh, okay, actually I'm overloaded. I'm tired because because I have 50 things <laughs> on, mm-hmm. uh, on my plate right now. And I need, to, I need to actually take some time to figure out what of these things um, is most um, necessary or most urgent. Or, mm-hmm. or if there is an emergency, where is it? Where does it exist right. here? Mm-hmm. Right. Jackie, what do you think about that, that sort of prioritization and, and, and really, you know, figuring out is it an emergency? Is it important? What, what will I do first in some cases to make my way toward self-care? Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a great point, the noticing. And when I see people get to the point of self-preservation, sometimes they can't access that noticing or they can't, you know, give themselves permission to even mm. think about it. Mm-hmm. So I'd like right. to, I'd like to um, add just the power of reflection and it doesn't have to be reflection you do yourself, but that you can do for others. Right. So sometimes I see even in chosen family and, and biological family and friend circles, we don't, want to bridge the gap. We think that we're being rude by asking certain questions, but I think it's really important if you notice that someone is struggling, especially right now, because we have lost way, way too many people in particular in black communities to suicide and mental health issues through this pandemic. If you notice that someone isn't doing well, ask for time to talk and think about bringing some reflection questions, you know, saying things like, if you struggle to give yourself permission to care for yourself, how would your best friend, how would you tell your best friend? What would you tell your best friend to do? What would you want for them? What would you want for someone you love? And when you look back on your life, you know, 40, 50 years from now, how will you have wanted to spend that time? Will this job, will this to-do list matter then? Or will having had time to explore who you really are and rest and be with the loved ones, will that be more important? I'm not afraid to ask the deep questions. And I always get consent to ask those questions. But I think reflection and education can be really, really helpful because sometimes we need accountability partners to pull us out of the pit and to just love us through it. And I, I got really serious about this a few years ago in part because I got educated about what stress does to the body and the fact that stress is related to eight of the leading causes of death, chronic stress. 
So when I talk with folks about this, I'm not making it pretty. I'm not talking about, you know, finding time an hour a week to garden. I'm talking about extending our lives, in particular as Black and Brown folks. So, you know, I, I, I sort of always am coming from an advocacy perspective. And I think, you know, hopefully that's a compliment to what you were saying, Jacqueline, because if people have capacity to notice, 100%. But we might need those around us to say, hey, hey, I'm knocking on your door. What, what do we need to do here to make sure you get through? From fighting censorship with young people like Angelica and Tracy to getting our art groove on with arts as activism, 2023 was a roller coaster of inspiration and action. And you know what? It left us with more fuel in the tank than ever before. But let's be honest, the world still needs a whole lot of gathering, a whole lot of listening, and a whole lot of shaking things up. And that's where you come in. Share your own stories. Celebrate the voices that move you. And remember, our collective ground is always waiting for our collective action. So thanks for joining us on this trip so far. I hope that your 2024 will be filled with more action-filled moments. Until next time, I'm Mary Morton, and this has been Gathering Ground.